0: Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com switch. Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty one twenty-four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am blessed to be in dialogue with Dr. Suzanne Frances Brown. She is an honorary research fellow at the University of the West Indies Museum. We will be discussing her new book, World War II Camps in Jamaica, Evacuees, Refugees, Internees, Prisoners of War, published in Kingston, Jamaica by University of the West Indies Press, 2022. Suzanne, I'm tremendously grateful for your availability for this conversation today.
1: I appreciate being able to to speak with you, Ari.
0: To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired your interest in this book?
1: Uh, I grew up, I was born in Kingston, Jamaica. I grew up there uh, to parents who were from... Uh, from Kingston and my mother from the what we call the country, so from rural Jamaica, and I think uh, that that is an important um, aspect in terms of just an interest in the 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 wideness of the Jamaican heritage and culture. Uh, extended family is important in Jamaica, and children often get uh, to spend holidays with um, with family in the country. So that's also been important. My family prioritized education, and I had an interest in reading, and especially in stories rooted in history and culture. Um, My interest in the local heritage and in the camps came out of a range of exposure and experiences. I was a child of independence, which in Jamaica came in 1962. Before that, we were a colony of, of Britain. Uh, but I had also the opportunity um, of my first degree in England and some exposure to Northwest Europe. I worked in journalism for regional and South-focused agencies. Uh, and I decided to pursue heritage studies uh, when I came as a mature student at the postgrad level at the University of the West Indies in, in Jamaica. And that led to a PhD in history. So... The topics that I have chosen in those situations really relate to the multiple layers of history overlapping uh, within the UWI Mona campus and as it relates to Jamaica and the Caribbean and the sense of the depth of those layers and yet the lack of active memorialization or underlying connection to a knowledge of those parts of the local history. So I would say those things have informed um, my interests and the work that I've done.
0: What message do you hope to convey to readers in this book?
1: I think I think I want to to try and identify and help to fill some of the absences that um, have become plain to me in the work that I've done um, on the heritage and history of of Jamaica, and particularly in relation to this period, this um, 1940s period in our history. Uh, I think those absences include the underrecognized um, contribution and connection to the, the World War II conflict specifically, um, includes the recognition of some of the impacts of the colonial condition, not only in terms of governance, but also personal people's participation, self-perception, engagement, and sense of agency. And I also hope to flag and fill some of those gaps with relation to this period. What are the primary themes in this book? Um, I think that the Jamaican and Caribbean connection or contribution um, was more significant than has been generally acknowledged, that these camps are part of the island's history and heritage and warrant acknowledgement in that regard and that large events and populations can leave a light footprint for, for various
0: reasons. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today?
1: Um, I think an appreciation of the greater nuance to history of World War II in this part of the Allied periphery, uh, specifically the possibility of reclaiming aspects of this specific part of Jamaica's history and heritage with wider connections to the very, very displaced populations and to the wartime context locally and broadly, and a sense of those being events that affected people and not just armies or nations. I think those are the the things I would like to bring out.
0: What can you tell us about the male internment center and the women's internment camp in Jamaica? What were the similarities and differences between these?
1: So I would say that in, in some ways they were very similar. Um, the, but the male internment camp was a more formal, um, more uh, traditionally military facility. Uh, it was set up first. It was in place in very early in, the, in World War II and had its first population um, of actually persons who had fled Europe, uh, sought refuge in the Caribbean, and who um, were nonetheless, because they were German or Austrian, because they were considered enemy aliens, um, were brought in at the very beginning of the war and interned. Um, And the, the camp grew, uh, and eventually ended up with a, a very varied population. It ended up with these persons, many of whom, or some of whom were Jewish, and, and some of whom were other persecuted nationalities who had ended up in, in Jamaica and in the other parts of the Caribbean, because it actually took population from other parts of the British West Indies. Subsequently, a number of persons from, who were interned, Germans and Italians, who had been interned in British West Africa, were brought to Jamaica and were um, kept in that camp. And many of those, or several of those, were persons who had families. And the families were split up for the first about three years that they were in Jamaica, and the men were kept in the internment camp. Um, So it was around that time that the female internment camp was set up. It was set up in downtown Kingston. It was not a purpose-built facility, the way the, the mail camp was. Um, and it was not considered that it were, it required military oversight in an ongoing way. So it was it fell more under the police than it did under the army. Um, so it, it in, in that regard, was um, a little less rigid and strict than um, the mail camp. The mail camp also extended um, really from the start of the war uh, and increasingly into the the 1942 period. Um, It included a number of uh, German, mostly German, some Italian um, sailors and merchant mariners who had been taken from from ships in the Caribbean and, and in the near North Atlantic. And so it it was this very, very diverse population of persons who were um, merchant mariners, but in, in the German terms, sort of quasi-state operatives, and, and some of them Nazi, and persons who were civilian internees, who had been professionals operating in West Africa or in Jamaica, and who had been brought into camp. And so these populations sort of Um, sat side by side in the male internment camp on the military aegis uh, over the period of the war. Male internment camp actually continued until early 1947 because the colonial government in Jamaica refused to allow many of the persons who were in that camp to be freed in Jamaica until there was a way to send them, to, to repatriate them. And says so some, some persons actually ended up staying in there uh, after the end of the war. Uh, the women's camp actually was shifted in 1943 because what there was a decision uh, for various reasons to put the married families back together. Um, some of that was German pressure. And so they were uh, the, a new camp was established in 1943 and the women and men who were married and who had been separated from late 1940 um, were brought back together and the children were actually able to live with both their parents at that stage.
0: You alluded to internees from West Africa. Mm -hmm. And one story that comes up in your book is that of Yue Mm Zitsao. Can you tell us about him and his family how did they come to Jamaica? Where specifically did they flee from? And what does Yue's story and his family's story teach us about the internment camps in Jamaica?
1: I think he, he pronounces his name Ufe. And I Uwe. had to get around that because I started Uwe. out calling him Uwe, and eventually he he very Thank kindly you for correcting me. He very kindly corrected me. Um, Uwe and his sister Giselle Gisela um, were children. Uwe was actually a baby when his parents were interned. They came from they had been working for many years in the British Cameroon, and the persons who came from West Africa, came from the British Cameroon, from the Gold Coast, which is now Ghana, from Sierra Leone, and from Nigeria. And they had all, um, in, in early 1940, for the most part, been interned and brought into a camp. Most of them had been brought to a camp in Nigeria. And from there, the decision was taken to, sh- to send them to Jamaica for for sort of, if you like, protective custody. Um, They were all considered to be enemy aliens. And so they were sent into internment camp in Jamaica. And Uwe, actually, I met him um, through an email he sent to the University of the West Indies Mona Library seeking information, if there was anybody who could tell him anything about... Uh, the camp that he had he had lived in as a child uh, it turned out that he had uh, he left Jamaica when he was seven or eight years old uh, had wonderful memories of of Jamaica um his sister would have been a young teen I think when she left and their parents had been split up on arrival in Jamaica his dad, who was a a plant and engineer, went to the the male internment camp, his mother to this women's internment camp in downtown Kingston, Jamaica, along with the children. And for a time, they were able to visit, and there are photographs of their visits. There's one of the photographs in the book. Um, And uh, so they're in a sense representative of both those internment populations. But then in 1943, uh, because of pressure from the German government, the, the colonial government in Jamaica puts this other camp together, the Mona family camp, and they are able to come back together as a family. And his recollections and the interviews that he did with his parents really helped to enliven the reports that were available on these various camps, um, through various sources and to some extent um, through the, 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 the British um, archive, but also, and I think very importantly, through the, the Swiss um, Federal Archive, the Swiss were protecting power for um, the internees and prisoners of war in Jamaica. And so they had regular reports that were kept on the various camps, and so what I what I was privileged to have was not just those Swiss reports, but also um, personal experience uh, in relation to this camp from 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 people, and particularly from from this person who had experienced um, or had close. Connection to the experience of all of those internment camps, and and Uve Uve has really stuck with me. He's been he's been really helpful in terms of providing information. He's been fascinated by the process. Uh, he's been wanting to do his own research, and he also was able to assist in terms of um, having someone to whom he's related do some. Um, some transcription, some some translation of uh, some of the German documents, the documents in German from from those um, Swiss reports. The, the the reports were in English, in German, and in Italian. Um, and you know, it was it was good to be able to have access to at least some of the non English uh, reports as well as the English reports.
0: Can you tell us about the Mona family camp in more detail? Um, Sure. What did married families experience there? Uh, When was it established? Who was kept there? What were conditions like there? Can you describe any additional personal stories of individuals who were there?
1: Um, The Mona family camp was established in September, October uh, 1943. The men who had, the married men were actually allowed to go first uh, to help prepare the camp. Um, and the one, of the, one of the persons, I think it was the, the um, person from the YMCA Aid Office was uh, who had gone in that period in 1943, said that the, the main concern that the women had Uh, was that after three years, the children would really be hard for the men to take. Um, But I think there was just a lot of joy at the ability to be back together as families. Um, The camp was in a very very good location. The Swiss Swiss consul in Jamaica or vice consul in Jamaica reported in i think it was october of 1943 on the on the preparations that had been made so it was a relatively small camp it was under 200 people including the men women and children there there were families but there was also single women so any single women um, from the women's camp were carried over to the family camp and had their own uh, barracks section uh it was a fairly salubrious climb. It was actually the back end of Gibraltar camp, which was taken over, was buffered off, um, fenced, etc. off from the, the back of the Gibraltar camp and taken over by the military. So it was run as a military camp. But the entrance was not through Gibraltar camp. It was a separate entrance. And the uh, the, the climatic conditions were good. There was a lot of space that was given to them. I think there was an effort, given that the, that in a sense the, the, the final push for that camp had come through concerns by the German government about the conditions at the women's camp in Jamaica, which had been very crowded and very hot. It was in Kingston, in the city. Um, I think there was an effort to to make sure that the conditions for the families in the camp was as were as as positive um, as could be accomplished. So, for instance, while the buildings were barracks buildings, there was an effort to create apartments, if you like, um, in those barracks in, by in the way the barracks were were separated so that people had their own space. Um, Uwe said that the the there were things like the 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 officials turned a blind eye to the fact that the the um, the residents um, or the detainees in that camp made special arrangements with the persons in the kitchen so that at eleven o'clock every day they had a special coffee uh, availability so they could go and have coffee. At that time, which I think would have been perhaps a a very sort of European tradition, and they were allowed to do things like that. So there was, it wasn't, um, they they weren't as rigid, I think, as they could have been in those circumstances. They had a community garden, um, they had, they kept rabbits, Uh, Uwe's dad was one of those who helped to build a community oven so that they could bake breads and so on that they wanted. And, and they were actually able to sell some of the produce um, of their garden to local market persons uh, from the nearby Capine area uh, and use those funds for comforts for special for special items that, that they might want. So um I think in in the context of uh of a camp in that circumstance, I think they did They did relatively well and they were i think for all the camps in jamaica on on the whole uh forced labor was not an an issue uh persons were required to participate in the male female camp and the married family camp persons had to participate in their own care uh and to a large extent i think the 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 officials tried to involve them in managing the facility to the extent that was possible um yeah. What
0: new insights does your book reveal about Gibraltar Camp? Can you elaborate?
1: I think I think what the book does in terms of Gibraltar Camp is to try and pull together the information um, available on the reasons why persons were brought to Jamaica, on who actually came, on the way in which they lived. Um, on the, the sort of conditions and concerns um, that may have occurred, but also on, on who the people were. And one of the things that I was very interested in was the extent to which it was possible for persons to interact with the Jamaican population, whether the local community or the broader Jamaican population. Um, Gibraltar camp was a colonial camp, colonial office camp. So it was a civilian camp. Um, But persons were required to live in. They were required to to sleep in the camp. They were uh, required to, uh, you know, have their meals and so on there. They could go out. And over time, the, the, the sort of regulations and so on, Four persons being able to, to interact or to go out into the local community meant that basically they could go out anytime from eight in the morning until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Um, and on occasion with special permission uh, overnight, they were not supposed to take jobs. Uh, and that was one of the, the factors in terms of the, the interaction between the camps and the local population. But what I, what I was... One of the things that really interested me was the extent to which in that situation and in a situation where Jamaicans were not encouraged, were not allowed in the camp, were not encouraged to have anything to do with these persons beyond beyond being polite to them when they happened upon them, Uh, the extent to which relationships nonetheless developed to the extent that I could find them. And so being able to to find persons who had connections with the camps over time, um, being able to to look out for stories relating to how Jamaicans related to the camp, uh, the extent to which people knew people in the camp. There was a a story uh, written by a a journalist named Hartley Meeter, who was a young man at the time but who remembered uh, that the market women at the Papine Market, which was about a mile from the camp, and which was often visited by the Gibraltarian and the refugee um, housewives, uh, looking to bring in some additional food and and cook for their their families, um, even though food was provided in the camp. Uh, that at the end, when in 1944, when the Gibraltarians were going back, that the the market women and the Gibraltarian women were hugging in the market and crying and saying goodbye. Um, so there's there's a there's a range of of interface between the camp and the camp population and the Jamaican communities, with both the geographical community and the communities of interest and that was something i really wanted to explore as well
0: what can you tell us about italian prisoners in jamaica are there any human stories you could share with us
1: i think i think maybe the italian prisoners have maybe the most stories so so the italians who came to jamaica were part of that group of quote unquote enemy aliens who were interned in west africa um, most of the Italians uh, had been interned in Gold Coast, in Ghana, um, and in Nigeria. And many of them were construction workers who had been working in West Africa. And they were brought to Jamaica um, as part of this large group of um, of enemy aliens who were interned and brought to Jamaica for safekeeping. There weren't many families. Um, there were, were only just a few, and I think those would have come from the persons living in Nigeria at that time. The construction workers in Gold Coast didn't have families on the whole, But these persons, uh, they were in the male internment camp for the most part. Uh, and then in 1943, um, at the time of the armistice, uh, the opportunity was given to the Italian prisoners to become cooperators and many of them did not all but many of them did Um, and so they were sent to live at a camp called Newcastle it was it's up in the hills above Kingston and their the amount of um, freedom that they were given increased significantly Um, and they even though they were not in in theory supposed to work um, they had to, they had to be supported, and hence there were opportunities that were given for them to do uh, work. Some often with the army uh, as construction workers or as as specialists um, in construction and engineering, um, and so they gained they gained a fair amount of freedom, um, much more the way that the evacuees were treated than the way that the majority of internees and prisoners of of war would have been treated. And uh, there are stories. They came down, um, many of them, there was a drought um, in the Newcastle area. And eventually, many of them were moved down to Gibraltar camp after the Gibraltarians left in 1944. Um, And there are many stories relating to them. while they were in the camp, um, the, both the Italians and the Germans were significantly involved in uh, a piggery um, in a large farm that helped supply food for the for the male internment camp in particular. Uh, it's said that the Italians were particularly, they didn't like, they, there were aspects of the food that they liked, but they, were, they wanted more vegetables, they wanted more greens. Um, and so they were very enthusiastic participants in, in growing these things. They also were involved in terms of things like sausages and pasta, issues relating to food are things that you hear about them where it comes to that. Um, the, the making of crafts, some of which, um, some of which were bought by people um, and, and some of which come up in stories. But when they, when they moved out of the camp and, and in the camp, they were also considered the more well-behaved persons, um, the less likely to cause disruptions um, in, in the camp. And when they moved out of the camp and they were um, essentially, according to someone, had essentially had the freedom of the city, except that they were required to be back in the camp at night. They set up a, a large workshop at in on Gibraltar camp in a section that was not being used, and actually produced a lot of um, drain pipes and and um, sanitary wares, um, basins and and things like this, as well as garden items. And um, people came to buy them. Uh, the other thing about them is that I actually had a. a an informant one of my one of the people I, I was in touch with over a period of time who actually got to know some of the Italians and she could tell me you know about what happened to them afterwards who worked on which vessels who set up a tea room downtown uh, some of them they met on the bus she and her cousins met them on the bus and they chatted people up on the bus and got to know Jamaicans Uh, ended up going to play bridge with, you know, somebody's father and cards with some other game of cards with somebody else. And essentially, I think, integrated themselves as much as were possible uh, into into the the cultural life. Um, And one one of the things I would also say about the Italians really relates to one of the stories that has to do with the parts of our heritage that I think we don't even recognize. Um, most people, including most of the Italians, not all. A few of the Italians actually did stay in Jamaica or did return to Jamaica after the war and and build businesses and so on. And there are a few families in Jamaica who have that who have that heritage. But I think one of the things that I find I found fascinating. In Jamaica, very often, especially in parks and in public spaces, you see these benches and they're made out of concrete that is made to look like branches. And what I discovered was that this was a technique that the Italian construction workers actually developed. Um, There was a man who lives up in the hills who who I spoke to who has a piece of, of this kind of concrete work As a plaque on his house and he said he got it from one of the Italians that he met in the Papine area and they actually made many of these benches and 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 so on which people have continued to use over the decades and which continue to be part very much part of of um, many of our public spaces and I think people don't recognize that there is this connection to the past So it's one of the it's one of those those things that I find really interesting.
0: Who is Joan Arne Halperin? What is notable about her? Can you tell us about her?
1: Sure. So Joan, um, she actually she actually wrote a book about um, a sister she discovered she had had who had been in Gibraltar camp with her parents. Joan came later after the war. And I met her because she was looking for information about her sister. Um, so her sister uh, died in Gibraltar. Well, she died in the hospital, but she died um, when she was four. Uh, there was an accident um, on the camp that involved uh, her dad had a bicycle and, and the child was on the bicycle. And, and there was an accident and th- the child was injured and eventually ended up in the hospital and eventually sadly died. And Joan recently returned um, to Jamaica uh, to rededicate her sister's grave, which is in the Jewish cemetery, downtown Kingston. Um, so th- there is a heritage connection for me in relation to the way in which the the history of the camps uh, continues into the present day. But Joan was also able She was one of those persons who was also able to to give some of the background to the persons who were in the camp. So she was able to share her parents' story. And she actually interviewed and and allowed me access to an interview that was done with her mother, um, who was able to shed some of the light on the Polish Uh, Jews who came as refugees and took some of the space that was free in Gibraltar camp because fewer of the Gibraltarians than had been expected did come to the camp. Um, And so uh, I connect to Joan from from a number of different perspectives. As I said, one, because she's able to to share information about... um, one of the populations that we otherwise meet from a more official perspective in terms of the Polish Jews in particular and other Eastern European Jews who were in the refugee section of Gibraltar camp, but also because of that heritage connection.
0: Who is RJ Walkerlin? Can you explain further?
1: Yes, so he, I, I mentioned the Swiss um, being protecting power for the internees and prisoners of war uh, in the internment camps in Jamaica. And R.J. Wackelin was the Swiss consul or Swiss vice consul in Kingston. He was actually, um, he worked for Coruba Rum, uh, which apparently was a a partially or wholly Swiss owned um, business uh, and was in Jamaica when the war um, broke out and became The person who would visit the internment camps Um, and so there are reports uh, that were crafted by him uh, to be sent to the to the swiss um, authorities Um, and they related to all the various populations of the internment camps and when they so he he visited regularly visited the male internment camps um, male internment camp, and his wife um, was allowed to visit the female internment camp, the women's camp. Uh, and then when the married families camp or the Mona family camp was established in 1943, that both of them visited. And so through the work that he did, um, there is access to a lot more information on the camps, the way the camps were operated, who was in the camps. Uh, He, for instance, lists at one point um, the the names of all the vessels, uh, all the merchant um, ships which were captured and whose crews were ending up in the male internment camp. Um, He gives information about, or he and his wife give information about, uh, the the food that the internees were, were provided with on a regular basis down to literally pounds, half pounds and ounces in terms of the diet that the persons had. Uh, he gives information about the games and the mental health, uh, about the farm, about educational opportunities, libraries, what books were there. So there is a a great deal of information provided in the reports that Wakalin and his wife did, which really enable uh, a far greater understanding and appreciation of who was in those camps and what their life was like.
0: Who was Inez Skeptor Baker? Can you tell us about her?
1: Yes, I would love to tell you about her. So she, um, she I actually also met via email uh, somewhere when I was doing my PhD in the early in the early part of that period. So I, I would have met Uve around via email around 2004, 2005. Uh, Anthony Lara, who was one of my uh, Gibraltarians around 2005, 2006, and Inez somewhere in that same period. So she got in touch with me. Um, looking for some information. I think one of the methodologies that I use um, was every now and again, I would write something about what I was doing and and send it as a letter, say, to the gleaner. And if they published it very often, I would get some hits from people uh, who had in some way been involved in the camp and who would offer information or could confirm data or, or, or so on. And one of the things that was fascinating about her was uh, she signed, I think she signed the email, Regina um, Baker. And so I went and looked up the Dutch um, lists that I had uh, for persons who had been in Gibraltar camp among the, the refugee groups. And I found I found her family. And when I wrote her back, She said, "Yes, if I hadn't given you my first name, you wouldn't have found me." Um, And you know, it it was it was an interesting response. But she um, was another person who, for many years, provided information. Um, She actually also visited Jamaica in, I think, it was 2017, along with her two sons and one of her nephews, whose father had also been in the camp. Uh, And we were able to. I was able to take her around the camp and she was, you know, she visited, for instance, the, what's now called the old dramatic theater, which was the recreation hall for the, for the persons living on the camp. And she said she remembers performing there. And so there's a picture of her kind of kicking up her foot uh, on the same place where she would have performed as a, a a young girl. So she was, she would have been about, I think, 10 or 11 when she came to Jamaica. She was able to provide me with a lot of information about other persons who had been in the camp. And she also also had photographs that she was prepared to share that many of which had been taken by her father um, of them in Gibraltar camp. She had stories about her parents going to Papine on a Friday night for the dancing and wished that she had been allowed to go, uh, but it was not considered proper. Um, she went to Saint Andrew High School in Kingston, along with a couple of the other Dutch refugees, and so there are there are a number of um, there were just a number of I suppose life connections that she was able to make and and things where there was official information that she was then able to provide uh, a kind of human side to, um, and and I think also in terms of things like the. Relationships within the camp between the evacuees and the refugees, and even between various groups of refugees. So there were the there was the Polish and Eastern European group who came early in um, 1942, and then the Dutch came 42 43, and were quite different populations. Um, and so issues relating to the relationships within the camp, she was also able to help shed light. On that, one of the things that's also fascinating is that I, one of the persons, one of the Jamaicans that I spoke to, remembered being on the what was then the tram to Papine from Saint Andrew High School and seeing these um, these refugee fellow schoolmates, but knowing that even though you could say hi to them, you couldn't go into the camp because Jamaicans were not allowed in the camp. And they were under the protection of the governor, and so you know there was there was this issue in relation to to interface, which also emerged from those connecting um, bits of of interview and bits of information that I was able to get. But I is is another of my um, my real uh, information providers and persons of interest over many years
0: who is miriam sanzer stanton so can you contextualize her for us
1: so she was one of the polish refugees she would have been i think probably about 18 17 or 18 when she was went to gibraltar camp um and uh she actually wrote a book and there are a couple of persons um, from various of the refugee groups who have actually written down their, their recollections and their stories. Miriam was one of them. I never met her, but I met her niece um, a few years ago. She visited the U. E. Museum. And I know Jamaicans who knew her and who continued to be in touch with her. She, so she was in the camp. Then she went to the US. She got married to an Englishman and, and moved to England and lived there. Um, but she wrote a lot about the camp, both from a, a sort of infrastructural perspective, but also from a perspective of the persons who lived there. She wrote about people's having their gardens and there being, you know, um parties and fights and all the things that would happen in any sort of community. And she she wrote about not only her own um, Polish group, but the other groups within the camp. So um, she's a wonderful resource from that perspective. She also writes about how she came, um, how her group, how her family came to to make their way um, to Lisbon. And the story of the the way in which they managed to get to Jamaica, they managed to get permission um, to find haven in Jamaica. Because, of course, so many other persons, um, refugees, especially Jews, did not manage that kind of escape. And there were these um, four or five groups of persons who did manage to get permission to go to Jamaica, whether through um, appeal to the British government by by these persons individually, they said, but also by the Polish government in exile. Um, and they were coming from, from Portugal and then the, the Spanish group that came through, the Dutch government in in exile. Uh, so it it's great to have access to that sort of contemporaneous uh, memoir that you can then juxtapose with other bits of information to really get a better sense of the the way in which people lived in the camp and um you know who was there and how long and so on. She had a particularly strong relationship with the Jewish community in Jamaica. Um, she got to know a number of the families. Uh, when her grandmother died there was this outpouring of support she was buried in the the same um Orange Street Jewish cemetery where this child that I mentioned um uh, Jones Jones the sister was also buried. Um, and so Miriam is interesting from that perspective because many of the Poles um, speak to a bad experience at the camp. They were, many of them were angry that they weren't able to work, that they had to stay in a camp. They, many of them argued that they had not been told the conditions under which they would be there. And many of them were people who wanted to work and wanted to contribute, wanted to fight, wanted to be there. And so they weren't happy. But she, her, and, and many of them said that they, they weren't happy about the Jewish community in Jamaica. But she, she shows a completely different side. And there are a number of other persons who show a completely different side in terms of that part of the story um, and who speak to the connections that were, that were made individually what can you
0: tell us about Ernest Ray can you tell his story
1: so Ernest Ray is uh, the Jamaican of these people that, who who were mentioning and Ernest Ray was the he started out as the manager of Gibraltar camp so the, the when Gibraltar camp was established in 1940 um, there were two English um directors in commandants, as they were called, um, very inappropriately, I think, what as they were called, in quick succession. And in both, for both of them, Ernest Ray was the, was their assistant, was their deputy. Um, he was the manager of the camp. And then uh, eventually he was made commandant of the camp. And he remained in that position for um, most of the time that the Gibraltarians were there. And so for the Gibraltarians and for the evacuees, uh, sorry, for the Gibraltarian evacuees and for the refugees, he would have been the main sort of point person and the main person to appeal to and the main person with final say in relation to the camp. Um, he was, he, before he went to Gibraltar camp, he was deputy mayor of Kingston. Um, uh, he played cricket. Uh, there is information relating to him, and he brought his family. I mean, his family came onto the camp, and I interviewed both his children, who were teenagers uh, at the time, living on the camp. Um, they, I, I basically tried to interview everybody I could find who who was still around, uh, who could who could tell me their experiences of the camp. Um, but Ray Ray comes up many times. Um, because of course, when people were happy or when people were not happy, uh, the man in charge is is the person who who you're gonna uh, relate to and who you're gonna hear about, and so his name his name is very frequently called in relation to to happenings on Gibraltar camp.
0: What can you tell us about Martin Aub? Who was he? Why is he noteworthy?
1: Martin Martin Aub came. He was. A uh, German Jew was married to um his his wife was not was not Jewish. Uh, and he fled Germany um before the war and actually went to Sierra Leone uh, to seek refuge and ended up interned in Sierra Leone. He was a doctor. Um and he was sent to Jamaica um, for internment when the German and Italian um, civilian internees were sent in 19, in late 1940. But he was a special case because, of course, he had actually been, um, he had actually come to Sierra Leone for refuge. He wasn't working there. But he ended up in the male internment camp um as uh, as an internee he was he al- along with um other uh jewish internees and some jamaican detainees and a few others um who had a bad relationship with uh some of the german population of the male internment camp were held in a special compound so they they the male internment camp ended up having a number of compounds. Um, for most of them, they would, for most of the day, be open to each other. But the the special the special compound where the Jewish uh, population, Jamaicans, etc., lived, um, they they there was no um, interplay um, or very little interplay with the rest of the population because part of the problem was that. A number of the persons in the camp, especially the merchant mariners in the camp, who had come as prisoners of war but eventually ended up being treated and categorized as internees, um, were anti-Jewish or you know had Nazi leanings. And so um, Ob, Ob lived in the camp with the other, um, in the section of the camp with others. And when Um, an effort was being made to consider the cases of the persons who had been in Jamaica living um, when the war started and who many felt ought not to have been interned with others who were considered as enemy aliens. Uh, His case and the cases of a few other persons in similar condition were considered. Um, He eventually was... um, allowed uh, certain freedoms and worked uh, in the medical field, stayed in Jamaica after the war. His family came to Jamaica. His son actually was a professor, actually knew him. Um, And interestingly enough, he actually gave the museum, the UA Museum, a helmet, a British helmet, which one day he was walking through the old Gibraltar camp area and kicked um, into and kept at home for a number of years and, and finally donated it to the museum. Uh, so his, his three children and his wife, um, he brought them to Jamaica. And for many years, they, they actually lived in Jamaica. What is also interesting about Orb is that he wrote again, uh, this is this in this case, as unlike Mar- Miriam Stanton, uh, unlike David Cohen and a number of others, he wrote an unpublished manuscript of his story. And there is a copy of it in the in the um, Library and Museum of the, the St. Andrew um, Girls School in Kingston. And I was able to access some of that. And so that also helps to kind of interleave in more material relating to his experience um, before but also when he came to Jamaica.
0: You point out in the book, That Jamaica's national stadium, which was built to host the 1962 Central American and Caribbean games, was built over top the male internment camp. What does this teach us about processes of oblivion and amnesia in post-World War II Jamaica regarding events that took place during World War II, in particular in regard to internees in the
1: country? I think it goes back to one of those things I mentioned about why I what struck me about um, these absences that exist um, in our country, and that I think I think very often exist in places where persons have been discouraged or not encouraged to participate in their own um in their own lives and decisions um under a colonial under a colonial situation and have they therefore haven't engaged with things as important to them um so the the land where the uh the national stadium is now was once part of Oppa camp which is a, a sort of large um large area that belonged to the the army to the military um and the that area that section is where the male internment camp was adjacent to the main military uh, garrison and um when the when independence was coming or and they they were looking to build the national national stadium um the authorities purchased this land, this, this number of acres of land from the military uh, for the purpose of creating the National Stadium. And by that time, actually, a number of the, the structures from the main internment camp had already been pulled down, but there certainly was at least one large structure still left um, because there was a, an ad in the paper which actually shows this structure um, and one is able to get a sense of the of the sort of size and scale of it uh, and material and so on. And there was a, th- this ad related to the pulling down of this structure so that the, the, the site would be clear for the building of the National Stadium. Um, I think the thing is that there is only... There there is only a small part from from, from how I look at it from the pers- from within the, the current boundaries of Opa Camp. Um, there is a, a fairly small section of what was the main internment camp still remaining that possibly, potentially might be interesting from the perspective of archaeological investigation to see whether there are remnants of the camp and its its population. But for the most part, the area which possibly could have been investigated from that standpoint uh, no longer exists, is now under the stadium. So I guess it's a a loss of possibility in terms of, I guess, academic investigation of these camps. But I think it's also a, a lack of recognition that something like that existed in this area there there is no particular memorialization of this element of our history in the vicinity of the stadium and I think the majority of persons just are not aware that that this is actually where it was and and that this is a part of of our history one of the things is that bear in mind that the internment camps unlike Gibraltar camp um well, to some extent on that Gibraltar camp from the perspective of Jamaicans, since Jamaicans were not encouraged to enter either. Um, these were not spaces that that welcomed or or allowed um, engagement with the, the local population. So, you know, this is this is one of the this is one of the things that that um, that emerges. But um this camp was there, there were people who spoke about it. I came across a few um, recollections of persons who remember seeing these little pink people as some of the children remembered working in the fields. Um, These would have been some of the internees and and originally prisoners of war who worked in in the farm, on the farm growing cabbages and so on and so forth. And those are some of the things that are that people have a kind of visual recollection of, but there is there is nothing to to remind us that this was there. There, it's mostly not there anymore. There is one monument inside of the Oppa um, camp, inside of that, which I believe marks probably one of the extremities of. The male internment camp. And that is a monument to Sir Alexander Bostamante, who was our first prime minister, who was actually detained within that camp um, for activities considered inimical to the security of the of the state during during the war. He was a politician and a labor leader. And he spent over a year in, in the, that special section of the camp that I mentioned. Where there were a number of Jamaicans detained, as well as the Jewish populate, the Jewish refugees, the Jewish internees, and so on, um, and that is actually marked. Uh, that's the only thing that's there, um, as it relates. There, there is really nothing else that, as it relates to the to the camps.
0: Can you tell us about the Jamaica Gleaner newspaper? You quote it and cite it frequently. What kinds of perspectives and opinions did it? Espouse. What does it ro- reveal about the role of the media in Jamaica during World War II? What does it teach us about the history of journalism in Jamaica more broadly?
1: I think I quote I quote the a lot. Um, there were there were a few um, consistent media houses uh, operating in Jamaica during World War II. The Gleaner has actually been around since 1934. I'm sorry, 1834. Um, it's our longest-standing. It's our newspaper of record, um, and it uh, published consistently daily during the entire period of the war. Um, and I think that's that's the main reason. It was also a Formal um, media outlet uh, with the the sort of um, perspectives and frameworks and structures that uh, traditionally have been held by many media houses. Um, it's a fairly traditional, on the whole, publication. Uh, it was generally, I think. Um, there was, somebody actually did a paper on the Gleaner um, from the period of World War I, and they talk about it as a conservative, a fairly conservative uh, newspaper. Of course, the style of writing and so on is completely different from, from what we have, we have now. But the approaches are consistent. Uh, the concern for um, verified fact, I think, is fairly consistent. And it therefore becomes an important source and an important counterpart to other information um, available on the period. I think one of the things that's also really important about using the media in that sort of situation is that it provides access to a range of information. Um, It has a different focus from the archival data That is available. And I think that's really important if you are interested in the people who are participating in a situation beyond just the official level. Um, You know, the Gleaner, what the Gleaner had included the letters to the editor, um, which were a, a wonderful way of incorporating people who wouldn't normally be considered. Um, quote unquote important in the sense of the media scope Um, and there are letters from people in Gibraltar camp for instance several times over the period complaining or thanking or extolling Um, there are ads for persons who took part in competitions and won small prizes there is an ad that I found uh, for somebody wanting a Gibraltarian man to come and do some work, uh, even though employment was supposed to be off the cards. Um, There are stories that relate to uh, the food situation in Jamaica when food became scarce and issues relating to the amount of um, supplies that were going to the various camps compared to the local population um and and so you you also kind of get a sense of how the local population to a degree feels about the camps and their general support for and and acknowledgement of the importance of this contribution to the allied effort in the war um but you know the camp they also there is there's things to do with civil liberties in Jamaica so the, the entire context of of Jamaica at the time um, is is illuminated through use of of things like you and they they even though you will find that the majority of people who are being focused on would be still persons at a certain level. Uh, when you look at the the things that the media sort of considers um, in in publishing stories, things like oddity and sensation and so on you can see it come into play so for instance there is a a, a significant report on the on page one and, and i think page three of the newspaper one one time that relates to two rastafarians who went into the house of assembly and wanted to talk to the governor about conditions that jamaicans were facing at the time Um, And their pictures are there and information about them is there, even though these are not um, middle or upper class Jamaicans. You also have a lot of stories to do with um, the government that includes the camps that has to do with um, considerations of whether um, race uh, is a consideration in some of the decisions that are taken um, there is a, a huge amount of information. There are also reports on the camps, into, including the the sort of earliest reports on the camps and the fact that the camps are coming. There are reports from the um, the local representatives complaining about the fact that the governor has not included them in the discussions relating to the camps and the decisions relating to the camps. So a lot of that material really sort of provides another another source, um, another perspective in relation to to the camps.
0: One of the images in the book that was quite intriguing is figure eight. Can you explain it to us? Can you interpret it for us?
1: Um, figure eight is a, a, a layout of Gibraltar camp. And actually, interestingly, if I don't know if you can see behind me, but it's actually a um, I actually had to stock it up behind me just for mm-hmm. the heck of it. Um so the one of the, the fascinating things about Gibraltar camp was that um because it was a, an imperial project, uh the the governor of Gibraltar asked for assistance from governors around the British um in, empire for this evacuation of its population and the Governor in Jamaica offered to establish this camp as a contribution to the Allied effort, and so it was built in very very quick order um, on this land that had been part of the Mona Sugar Estate, Mona and Papine Sugar Estates, which were lying idle. Sugar was no longer being grown there, and the, a number of um, a number of local contractors were brought in. The, the Public Works Department did a very very simple layout and then there were actually uh drawings done um for i'm just gonna see if you can see this but there were yes. there were actually uh hundreds, you know dozens of these drawings that have um remained in the in the jamaica archives um and which i, I actually thankfully had um, access to through Professor Barry Higman, who used to be at the University of the West Indies, Mona. Um, and so there are all these, these things that indicate the kinds of structures and so on that were um, put in place uh, for, to facilitate the life of, of these persons who are coming from, from Gibraltar. At one stage, there was also um, an effort to get uh, persons from Malta to also also come, but there was resistance um, from that population. Uh, So the the camp was built, um, originally it was meant to just be on one level and the the original population that it was meant to to deal with was a population of about 4,000 persons. And then uh, while the building was going on, they, they were asked to extend that first to seven and then to 9,000 persons. And so the camp was built on two levels um, of the land. Uh, and then of course, you know, when the first sets of Gibraltarians came uh, in October, November, 1940, um, most of them had been sent to England with the aim of them being brought back across the the, uh, North Atlantic to Jamaica, to the camp. But because the conditions of the submarine warfare, et cetera, were so poor, uh, the decision was taken not to send them. And so it was only two shiploads of persons who came direct from Gibraltar who actually originally were located in the camp, on the upper level of the camp. So this figure eight is a PWD layout of Gibraltar camp, uh, as it existed, and it actually also allows um, a sense of what remains. So you can tell from these drawings what um, the university has actually continued to to use or to maintain uh, of those buildings, which which ones are still there. And there there has actually been there was a small. Um, exploratory uh, archaeological dig in the in the area of the camp which found a few relevant artifacts and you know the hope is that it may be possible in the less the less exposed or the less um the less affected areas that have been less affected by building to still do some more of that kind of work and this kind of information the the layout etc actually allows us to know where where things were and one of the interesting things I should add is that that existed for Gibraltar camp it didn't exist for any of the other internment camps Uh, so the male internment camp there is a lot of information about it but there was very little existing in terms of how it actually was laid out Um, the women's internment camp the married families camp the uh, Uve who we who we mentioned earlier was a wonderful he he generously um assisted with redrawing all of those um camp those, well not the male but in terms of the women's camp and in terms of the married families camp in in redrawing how they actually were when he and his family were there so that it, even though they there were not PwD layouts for them they it's been possible to to sort of get a sense of of how they laid out. Can you
0: interpret for us figure 21 and 21A? Can you explain what these images depict for our listeners who might not be able to see it themselves? Uh, What is presented in these
1: images? So figure 21 um, and figure 21A relate to Gibraltar camp. The first is an image of, Anthony Laro, who was one of the my my sort of original Gibraltarian contacts, uh, at a monument which was um, which was created within the Mona Campus site of the University of the West Indies in the area where Gibraltar Camp was, and it's a monument to Gibraltar Camp. Um, and in the picture, uh, Anthony is with the then. Uh, campus principal, Professor Elsa Leoraini, uh, for a dedication of of that monument, and that was in 2007. And I, I Anthony, Anthony is, is a wonderful story. He came to Jamaica, literally, I got a call from the public relations office of the University of the West Indies Mona campus to say that there is this man who is looking for his grandmother's grave. He's from Gibraltar, and since I'm doing work on Gibraltar camp, is there any possible way I can help him? So I met Anthony. Uh, he had been all over the place looking for his grandmother's grave. His grandmother, Elizabeth Epsworth Lara, had been um, on in the, in the camp. She was an old lady. Her son, Anthony's father, had not come because he. most of the people who came to the camp were either children under the age of 18 or older persons. If the men, if they were men, they were mostly over 40. And if they, if not, they were women and and children. And so her son had been left behind because he, he had just turned 18 and in 1944, when they were scheduled to return, she died just before the ship left. And so his father never knew that his mother had died and was on the pier waiting for her to come off the ship. Uh, And that is when he discovered that she had died. And Anthony said his father never got over it and always wanted to come to Jamaica to find his mother's grave. And so um, through various persons and and all sorts of wonderful interactions, he was able to to locate his mother's, his grandmother's grave. And, had it retombed, and he said when he came, he actually wanted to exhume her body and take it back. But when he discovered the condition in in which it was found and so on, he was happy to leave leave her here. Um, But he wanted to be part of some memorialization. And I was at the time on um, a heritage committee on the campus, and we wanted to put up a monument. And the two things sort of gelled. And so he had he had Rock of Gibraltar quarried um, and polished in Gibraltar. Um, he had, we did the research on the names of persons who had died while they were in Jamaica. We wanted to put the names of persons who had been born also, but that proved a little bit more problematic. Um, he had, you know, he had the, this thing inscribed and then he shipped it from Gibraltar to London. And when it got to Jamaica, it, and then on to Jamaica, and when it got to Jamaica, he got on a plane and came here for two days so that he could lay a wreath at the memorial. And so this is this picture, um, figure 21, shows him with the, the principal of the campus at the time at this monument, which is in the Gibraltar camp. Area of of um, of the UWI Mona campus, and then Figure Twenty One A is is more recent when in twenty nineteen the mayor of Gibraltar uh, visited Jamaica as part of uh, a, a link with the mayor of Kingston. So the mayor of Kingston went to Jama- to Gibraltar, the mayor of Gibraltar came to Kingston, and they um, came and. We gave them a tour of Gibraltar camp, of the, of what's left there, and took them to the, to the monument and so on. Um, there are were, there were a number of heritage signs that have been put up. And so this is her um, standing beside one of those heritage signs that marked the entrance to uh, what was then Gibraltar camp and what is now a part of the UWI Mona campus.
0: In your title, you outline categories of persons who made their way to Jamaica prisoners of war, internees, refugees, and evacuees. What do these terms specifically mean? How do they apply to different groups of people in Jamaica during World War II?
1: It's really an important question because I think it has a lot to do with people's self-concept, especially for the evacuees. So evacuees are basically persons who have been required, usually by their governments, to leave their homes for whatever period of time and in whatever um, situation and, and, and um, state. And the Gibraltarians, um, there was this major evacuation. And so these persons were required to leave because of concerns about threats to what was then a, a major sort of strategic center for the, for the British in particular and the Allied in in World War II. Um, And it's really interesting because there are are records where you have persons who were among the Gibraltarian evacuees are complaining that uh, there are people who are calling them refugees, and they're not refugees. They didn't want to leave. They didn't believe it was necessary to leave. They only left because they were made to leave. so the distinction between the evacuees and the refugees really relates to the fact that the refugees, for the most part, um, recognise a need to leave in the face of threat, and it may be that there they're, um there are group situations, um, and they're they're there as part of groups, but it also, in a sense, is that in a in many instances an, in an individual. Um, move an individual recognition of threat and the need to the need to move. Um, so they so you, in Gibraltar camp you had um, you had the Gibraltarian evacuees. There were very few Maltese, but there were mainly the Gibraltarian evacuees, um, persons who the government had made arrangements with the colonial government in Jamaica to. Um, accept and care for these persons, and it was a very paternalistic sort of situation because a vast majority of them were women, uh, girls, and young, and other children, male children as well. Um, and and there was they they really wanted to keep them sort of contained, and the the Catholic Church was very involved in their um, in their care. and and monitoring uh, while they were at Gibraltar camp. And then you had the refugee population, which came in subsequently through arrangements that often had been made by their countries. But these were groups of people who had, for the most part, left individually or as families and ended up grouped together and came to Jamaica as groups. So the Polish and Eastern European groups and the various um, groups of Dutch refugees also um and then in the internment camps uh you had the internees and in the end the majority are categorized as internees so there is there a number of the persons who come into the male internment camp are originally categorized as prisoners of war and if you look at some of the stamps etc that exist the male internment camp is originally cat- categorized as an internment and POW camp. But when you look at the the records that are there, what the British basically say is that they didn't set up a separate camp for the internees and the prisoners of war. And so in the end, they treated everybody pretty much as um, internees and therefore they stopped categorizing uh, even the merchant mariners who were captured at sea, um, they stopped categorizing them as POWs and essentially categorize them as internees. So internees are persons who um, have been basically locked up because they're considered a possible security threat. Many of them are uh, categorized as enemy aliens. And in this case, the original POWs would have been persons who were... Uh, captured um, on ships. Most of them are not um, not straight army or navy. Many of them are, uh, especially for Germany, merchant mariners. Uh, one of the things that's interesting as well is that when you look in the Briggs Park Military Cemetery, there's a number of Italians um, who died during the period. And on those graves, it says soldato or soldier. Um, but there's, it's been, it's some of those things are still very difficult to, to kind of capture the detail of. But those are the groups.
0: Can you describe the interactions between the various groups? For example, can you describe the the interactions between evacuees and refugees in in various camps in Jamaica? Can you comment on the interactions between? refugees and evacuees with internees and with prisoners of war, how did these different uh groups and individuals within these different groups, how did they interact with each other?
1: So because because the interne, the because the evacuees and refugees essentially were the ones in Gibraltar camp. They were um, the ones that are um, civilian and um, not considered as as enemy aliens, but considered as friends, so to speak. Um they they didn't have um very much direct connection to the other two groups. Um so they they kind of they kind of come in two sets. So the evacuees and refugees in Gibraltar camp is one of the things that you know um some of the persons who are in the camp comment on. Uh somebody like Ines Baker, she talks about um, the relationships between the various groups of refugees in Gibraltar camp and also between that there was very little connection between the evacuees who lived on a higher level of exactly the same camp because they were settled there first when the refugees came and the refugees. Um, you know, the the Miriam Stanton book also talks about Um, Who gets to know who? Uh, I think that many of the relations varied according to things like social class, language, um, financial status. Uh, The the refugees and evacuees at Gibraltar camp shared the camp. They shared all the facilities of the camp. The regulations were the same. um, But they were culturally fairly different uh the gibraltarians as i said were um had a lot of oversight by the catholic church um it was a fairly conservative population uh you know of varying social socioeconomic status um they mainly were a group many of them spoke spanish for choice even though many of them spoke some english or or spoke english um the, one of the interviews I did um, with one of the the daughter of Ernest Ray basically said that she had very little to do with the Gibraltarian um, youth. And there were a lot of them who lived very close to where she lived, um, mainly because from her perspective, they spoke Spanish and their interests were different from her interests. Um, the, the refugees were a varied group. Um, varied again socioeconomically um you know varied some were dutch um some were polish or eastern european there were linguistic differences they lived in the camp at a little bit different times and there is actually actually there's actually a timeline um that is i think one of the early figures uh figure five which which records the differences in arrival of, uh, arrivals and departures in the camp and that also would, would kind of give a sense of how people overlapped, the extent of overlap because there were some groups that basically were there by themselves and then some groups that overlapped with other groups and so on. Um, but yeah I would I would say I would say language and and socioeconomic situations, um, brought varying experiences. There were some people who uh, had had fairly um, fairly regular or, or were comfortable to leave the camp on a regular basis. And some of whom uh, participated in social occasions with Jamaican in middle, middle and upper class Jamaican homes. Um, there's, there's definitely uh, information to, to that extent. But it, it, it really it really varied significantly. The Gibraltarians were much more a solid group, and the refugee groups were more varied. There are, there are reports of occasional marriages between the, between the groups. Um, but for the most part, I would say people sort of stayed in their groups. In the internment camps, um there were originally challenges some of which found their way into official record and into questions in parliament and so on related to the the um keeping of Jew- jewish um internees and nazis in the same or or close proximity and eventually there was this uh separation within the the camp, whether it was absolute as in, in the male camp where they created a compound or in the women's camp where they tried to keep um the Jewish women in a in a whole in a house in a in a facility of their own so that they didn't have to sort of rub up against or bruise against um persons who uh perhaps were um you know behaving in a in a Uncomfortable fashion. Um, so yeah, the the relationships the relationships varied varied a lot, but it had a lot to do with the infrastructure and the timing of the the various populations. There was definitely, I think, in the in the male camp in particular, um, some of those people stayed there until 1947, and there were definitely by I would say uh, 1940 before the end of the war when it was coming to the end of the war. There are concerns about mental health and so on. And, and just, um, you know, uh, persons who are have lost interest. They've been in the camps for years in the same space. And they, in the internment camps, cannot leave. Uh, they can't go out. They can't visit and make connections with other people. So that the situation was quite different from that perspective. Can you comment
0: on... A couple of other images for us i would be curious if you can share perspectives on figures 7 7a and 7b to listeners who can't see these what is depicted why are these images significant
1: so these in a sense go back to that um question about the layout of gibraltar camp um 7 7a and 7b are images of gibraltar camp under construction uh, so they really kind of give a sense of the location uh, they give a sense of the the layout um, of the structures they, these are large um large 150 foot by 25 foot wide wooden structures on posts um they they have you know they're constructed with um the, with with partial uh divisions inside to allow airflow, but of course, that has concern for privacy. They have clerestory windows to try and bring in light. So you get a little bit of a sense of how they're being, how the structures are developing, how they they are laid out in relation to each other. One of the things I also found interesting about um, the, the the photographs from the camp construction um, and these were in a collection from one of the contractors uh, that are in the National Library of Jamaica. Um, they also show some of the Jamaicans who are doing the construction, and I, I like that that kind of connection, which of course closes off once the camp opens. Um, but here you see, you know, you see a woman who is obviously, um, obviously cooking for the construction workers, you see some of the construction workers on on the site. So from from my perspective, it's interesting from that point of view in terms of the the sort of connection of the local population to this site from which they were then uh, largely Mm -hmm. barred.
0: Can you comment on other islands in the Caribbean that hosted refugees and internees and evacuees? Was Jamaica unique? What other islands have similar stories and histories of European and Jewish evacuees, internees and refugees seeking asylum? How were circumstances similar or different to Jamaica? What scholarship exists about these other islands?
1: So, one of the interesting things, I would say there's a way in which the Jamaican situation is unique. Um, but I think it's also possible to argue that Trinidad is the other um, place that has its own unique sort of experience mm-hmm. of of wartime camps and and especially the the wartime situation in a in a different and very, very interesting way. Um, And that's probably where there is most other research that has been done from a number of different perspectives and where perhaps there is more still to be said. In relation to the other, most of the other um, then British West Indian territories, uh, most of them who had persons interned interned as enemy aliens for the most part um, were sending those persons to Jamaica. So most of them ended up, there were persons from Ghana, persons from British Honduras, now Belize, um, and a number of other um, places in the British West Indies, ended up in internment in Jamaica. Um, but there is there is uh, research that has been done. I think one of the, actually put this one behind me so that I would remember it. Yes. Um, yes. So one of the one of the pieces of work that's been done that I would I would want to mention is this one, which is um, World War II in the Caribbean, which was edited by Karen Eccles and Debbie McCollin um and done a few years ago. My I had actually done something on uh, Gibraltar camp and the the World War, the the World War camps in, in Jamaica here, and it was an expansion of that. Um but it really does does give a sort of um, a snapshot or or really a sense of the other uh connections not only in the English-speaking Caribbean in the, the, the Spanish the Dutch, uh, the French Caribbean um as well as in some of the some of the the things that occurred in in St Lucia but um and and some of the other countries but I would say, uh, most of the other work in relation to the English-speaking Caribbean has probably been done in Trinidad, um, now Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, and, and um, you know, that includes work that was done on the persons um, who escaped um, Jewish and other persecuted groups that escaped uh, Europe escaped Germany in particular before even the beginning of the war. Um, who found their way to the Caribbean um, mainly because it was there were loopholes in terms of how persons could be allowed in, even at a time when quotas were were not being um, raised for Jewish refugees in particular. Um, and so these persons found their way to the Caribbean and many were living here. I mentioned them in terms of Jamaica. This was the case also in terms of Trinidad. And of course, these groups ended up in many instances, not all, but many instances in turn because they were enemy aliens. So even though they were themselves escaping um, the Nazi uh, situation in Germany, they were born in Germany or born in Austria and they therefore were being picked up as enemy aliens. Um, Was the case also for some of the Italian um, persons, certainly in Jamaica, but there has been work done in in Trinidad and Tobago relating to um, groups of persons who were uh, interned, Um, groups of these persons who self-identify as refugees, and who were nonetheless um, interned as enemy aliens in the camps. Trinidad is also important, I think, and also interesting um, because so many of the, there was so much um, sinking of vessels in that area, especially on the time when the German submarines were uh, in full flight in the Caribbean. Um, And, so there, they also in Trinidad are camps of, um, you know, both uh, s- sailors who have been taken off vessels that have been sunk by the British Navy, etc. As well as um, there's an American, there's a set of there's an American camp at one stage in Trinidad as well as there is in Jamaica. So there are. There, there are a lot of things going on in Trinidad. When they, when they, the, um, when they were sending the persons from British West Africa, they actually originally wanted to send them to Trinidad, and the British said, "Nope, there's no space, can't, wow. can't be done." Wow. Uh, and so arrangements were made to, to send them to Jamaica. For the Dutch, similarly, there was, um, there was a. That was one of the places that was identified as possibly um, a transit point for Dutch refugees, and the British said, "There's just there just isn't any space. There are way too many people um, already in camps of one sort or another here in in, uh, in Trinidad." So I think Trinidad is is probably um, the other place in the British West Indies of the time um, that has that that probably has the most, the widest range of um of untold or or less told stories. But I think that, you know, the, the the World War II in the Caribbean um and the Caribbean book really kind of begins to to sort of open the pages on on what is there and what um scholarship is on the way where that's where that's concerned
0: this interview has been a tremendous blessing and honor as we bring our dialogue to a close can you tell us about your current research where has your attention gone since the completion of this book
1: so i would say that the my my interest i i won't lose i will ne- i don't think i'll ever lose an interest in in this in particular because of the number of persons who have made it such a kind of personal journey, um, as well as 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 a sort of journey of scholarship. Uh, but you know, when when I when I started looking at Gibraltar Camp, um, when I originally before I did my PhD on on Gibraltar Camp, um, I did my masters in heritage studies at the university campus and. Mm-hmm. I, I mentioned this kind of multi-layered history that is overwritten on the site, and of which the World War II camp is a part. The other part that um, the other part that is there, um, virtually cheek and jowl with it, is the history of um, these two sugar sugar estates, um, Papina and Mono, which. Um, were operating there for, um, s- since sort of the mid-1700s uh, and before, but were pulled together as estates in the mid-1700s and really is also a big part of that landscape. And, you know, my my interest in, in these sort of absences also extends to these areas because the our plantation history is also a history of enslavement um, up until the, you know, eighteen thirty 1830, eighteen thirty eight and beyond, and and there are significant absences in terms of those populations, which were essentially there was there was a huge process of dehumanization and only the the only interest was in in people as labor. And so I have an ongoing interest also in trying to illuminate those populations. Um, and I've I've been working on some of the records that do exist. A lot of records are, are not um, available. Uh, so that also goes back to trying to bring, I, I think this is my sort of journalistic roots, trying to, to seek out some of these um, possible records and see how they can be, Sort of interleaved and interwoven in order to to shine light on on these people and spaces. Um, so this is th- what i this is what I'm, is what I've, I'm now um, I've now turned my my focus my focus to. But it comes out of as I said um, my my early interest in all of these various aspects of this amazing, multifaceted, multi layered site. At at the UWI MUNA.
0: Thank you. This research that we've been discussing is extraordinary. I'm certain your forthcoming research will be no less extraordinary.
1: Thank you, Ari. I appreciate it.
0: To our listeners, I'm your host today on the New Books Network, Ari Barbalat. Today I've been in dialogue with Dr. Suzanne Francis Brown. She is an honorary research fellow at the University of the West Indies Museum. We have been discussing her new book. World War II Camps in Jamaica, Evacuees, Refugees, Internees, Prisoners of War, published in Kingston, Jamaica, by the University of the West Indies Press, 2022. Thank you.